we are, Lord. Would you send us however you want, wherever you want. Lord, we know that we love you. We love you first because you first loved us. We love others because you love others. And so we pray that we would live like we have been sent everywhere that you have placed us. To be light and to point to your love. Amen and amen. Well, kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us. You are now dismissed to your classes. Your teachers are heading out the back, and so you can head out that way. And as the kids head out, let's, uh, let's dive in. Maria has been a, a Christian for five years. Now, she doesn't remember exactly the day that she believed in Jesus, but it, it felt like God had been working on her heart for years. And now she, she couldn't get enough of him, right? She, she couldn't get enough of the Bible. She prayed for anything and everything, but, but something happened whenever she got to know someone new at church, right? Something that, that kept bothering her. She would, she would introduce herself, and they would make small talk, but eventually the question would come, that, that question that she kept wondering about. And they would ask, well, what do you do for work? Now, Maria, she loved her job, right? She, she worked every day with spreadsheets and numbers, and, and it was her happy place, but she was getting more and more embarrassed to answer the work question because she felt like as much as she loved her job, it wasn't doing something really important. It wasn't saving the world or bringing people to Jesus. It was just numbers. Sometimes she even wondered, did God even really care about what she did? Was it actually important? Now, Alex had been following Jesus since he was a kid. His parents talked about Jesus day in and day out at home, and he, re he remembers committing his life to Jesus at a really young age. And, and yes, it took him time to grow into it, but he loved Jesus, and he knew that Jesus loved him. And, and he also loved his neighborhood. His, his parents had settled in this particular neighborhood since before he was born, and, and now that he was an adult, he had, he had bought a, a house just up the block. His church was in his neighborhood. He, he worked at the neighborhood school. He, he loved his community, and he, he loved his neighbors, but... More and more lately, when he talked to his neighbors about Jesus, they kept questioning whether the local church even really loved them. Didn't Jesus say something about loving your neighbor, his next-door neighbor once asked? Alex was like, yeah, of course. His neighbor responded, well, then why does it feel like I have to join up before you guys love us? Feels like it's more you versus us these days. Alex wasn't sure what to say, and it's been bothering him ever since. Does God care about my neighborhood, or, or is everybody in this neighborhood just, just enemy fighters to be converted or defeated by God? Does God care about my work? Like, like what I actually do, or, or is that just how I, I pay the bills? Is the stuff that I do day in and day out, with, with more hours than I can count in a week, even important to God? Does God care about my neighborhood? My community. Yes, about the salvation of their souls, but, but what about their, their, their bodies? What about, what about the, the school or, or the roads? Does God care or, or am I just wasting my time caring about that stuff? This morning, we continue our gospel culture series by turning to a topic we may not always hear about in church. And yet this topic is something that, that I, I think the scriptures communicate is, is essential to any church that wants to be biblical because it is essential to understanding what God cares about and how God wants his people to live. I'll give you a hint. It's about more than we think he cares about. Let me catch us up here before we dive into the scriptures. We, we've already established that our filter for everything in this series and, and, and in our church must be the Bible. We've also established that, that, that the central reality of our church must be the gospel. 
the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. From these two particular traits, we have looked at two more important traits of, the, of a biblical church, worship and prayer. Giving our complete loyalty to God in worship and living out our complete uh, dependence on God in prayer. So now I want us to turn to another trait of a biblical church. A, a, a trait we may wonder about even if we don't know what to call it. Because it's something that impacts our entire lives. This morning, we're looking at the pursuit of the common good. Now... The language of the common good has all sorts of meanings in our current society. It's something that's thrown around by, by politicians and activists and philosophers even to mean something like the most good for the most people. At least that's the way that one particular author, Gabe Lyons, summarizes what society means by the common good. Right? Some of us will have to sacrifice so that most of us can experience the best life possible. As with most ideas in our society, this concept of the common good actually has its origins in Christianity, but it's been seriously distorted by sin and our culture to get to this most good for the most people way of life. But that's not what Christians believe when we talk about the, the common good. It's not how Christians pursue the common good. No, a theology of the common good is not the most good for the most people, but as Lyons clarifies, it is the most good for all it is pursuing what's good as defined by God for everyone because they are created in the image of God. Or I'll put it even more directly. Pursuing the common good is participating in God's work here and now to make all things, not just spiritual things, new. Participating, which means we have to actually do something, in God's work. Right? Not just what we think is best, but what, what God defines as best. And it happens here and now, not just eternity someday, but in this present moment. And, and, and God's work here and now is to make all things, not just spiritual things, new. He's, he's fixing what sin broke in our souls, but also what sin broke all over creation. In our bodies, and our hearts, in families, and in neighborhoods, and everything. Not just spiritual things. Participating in God's work here and now to make all things, not just spiritual things, new. Now, if you've been here for a while, you might be starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Eric's been talking for a long time already, and we haven't even got to the Bible. This is not how we do things. Where is that in the Bible, Eric? Are you just talking about something you like to talk about? Well, I'm really glad you asked. The pursuit of the common good is not just some uh, a philosophical idea that Christian thinkers have come up with or, or some political platform that's trying to make everyone work together. No, the pursuit of the common good is a shorthand way of summarizing how the Bible explains God's people are to live in the world that he has created, even though, or maybe especially because, it is a world that's broken by sin. So this morning, I want to convince you not only that the pursuit of the common good is in the Bible, but that the Bible actually answers the questions of, of, of my fictional characters, Maria and Alex. Does God care about our work, and does God care about our neighborhood? Does God care about what happens here on earth, or is this all just uh, on Super Bowl Sunday halftime, and you know everything's paused until Jesus comes back? I want to convince you that any church that wants to be biblical must pursue the common good because God is at work here and now, making everything right, even though it won't be done until he returns. So I want to convince you that from one particular passage in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to, to turn there. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the back on that cart. And if you really want to, you can follow along on the screens. And I'll also ask you, if you're able, to please stand as we read from God's Word. The reason I'm doing this, and we do this every Sunday, is we stand not because there's something magical about standing, 
but because with our bodies, we want to communicate our hearts, that we are submitting to the words of the king together. So, familia, I want you to listen to these words from our king, from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it, pros- if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is God's word. You may be seated. God Almighty, would you use your word to change us this morning? Would you align us with your ways in the world, your mission, your kingdom purposes, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray all these in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, all right, let me give you a little bit of context before we drop into this text. The first three verses of this chapter of Jeremiah 21 actually help us by by showing us that our passage is actually part of a letter that's written to exiles. The first three verses read like this. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. The text that we are studying this morning is something that the prophet Jeremiah, God's prophet, this, this messenger of God that calls God's people to repent with God's words, is writing from Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, to a group of exiles that are living in Babylon. Right? And this group has, has elders, has priests, has prophets, skilled workers and artisans, right? They're the graphic designers. E- exiles, because the Babylonians had invaded and conquered Jerusalem and deported all of them. Keep reading. Verse 3. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Whew. I've been practicing that one. It said, the letter said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is a letter from God to his people exiled in an enemy nation, exiled by God. They are being punished for their disobedience. They're scared, they're anxious, they're angry at God, because who likes to be punished? They're being disciplined, and yet they haven't learned their lesson and repented yet. This is the context of this letter. And so to begin this letter, God tells his people something that's that's not just radical for them, but I think is also radical for us as we consider how God works in the world. 
something that instructs them and, and, and should help us better understand how God actually does his work. And it can be summarized with that phrase that I introduced to you at the beginning, the pursuit of the common good. And God's instructions in this particular passage come in four ways. Pursue the common good vocationally, pursue the common good counterculturally, pursue the common good realistically, and pursue the common good hopefully. And at the end of all this, my hope is that you would be convinced that a biblical church responding to God's work in the world pursues this common good and that you might even start thinking creatively about how you and how we as a church community can do that. All right, let's start with the beginning, the first way, pursuing the common good vocationally. Now, I chose that word that we don't normally use day in and day out on purpose here. How many of you have, have seen that word, know what that word means before? Don't be shy. All right. If you've seen that word in the wild, most of the time it means something like your job, right? What you do for work. But I, there's something about this word that has a much richer and, and, to be honest, a much more theological definition that I want to give you this morning as we process through this text. There's a, a theological understanding because vocation is not just about your job. Vocation is about your calling. All of your callings, right? The different callings that God has given us in our lives, which includes our jobs, right? But is not limited to our jobs, right? So, so working at Starbucks, starting a business, coding as a software engineer, teaching in a classroom, these, these are all vocations, but we don't just have to, we don't have to get paid to have a vocation, right? Being a stay-at-home mom is a vocation, Be, being a, a father, a grandma, a daughter, a, a student, a brother, an elder at your church, a small group leader, these are all vocations, callings. And when I say that, I don't mean it in some like a, a mystical, I have to figure out my life during my freshman year of college and pick the, the perfect major for myself that will determine the rest of my life kind of way. I mean in a God has placed me here for this time to live out this calling kind of way. And we work hard to be faithful in each and every one of our callings, depending on God in the midst of them and not our own strength, but figuring out, yes, our giftings and, and having wisdom within our community that kind of speaks into that. This is what I mean when I say the word vocation. And this is why God has so many examples in this particular letter in our text that he sends to his people in Babylon. Look at verses 5 and 6. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Remember our context. God's people have been exiled to their enemies for disobedience and now God is telling them, build, settle, plant, eat, marry, have kids and marry your kids off so that they might have kids. Grow as a community, don't, don't shrink. In essence, God is telling them to settle down and live like residents instead of tourists. Right? Theologians Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon use the language of, of resident aliens to describe this kind of uh, command from the Lord. You see, resident aliens, they not only live in a place, but they care about living there, but they also recognize that this is not their home. They do things that tourists wouldn't do, but they also don't pretend that this is all that there is. Now, this, to illustrate this, this is, this is the mentality that's, that's the difference between uh, uh, renting and owning a car, right? I, I don't treat the cars that I rent the same way that I treat it, the cars that I own. Don't worry, I, I, I'm kind to the cars that I rent, but, but it's not like my own car, right? I don't take a rental car to, to get the oil changed or to rotate the tires or to check the brakes. I don't, I don't own that car. It's the rental car's property, rental company's property. But when I own a car, I need to make sure that all of that gets done because I care about my car like someone who owns it. What God is telling his people here 
is that you need to live here like you care about living here. Like this is not just a rental. Don't, don't build temporary housing. Move into the neighborhood. Don't just do what you can to get by. Work the land and provide for your family. Oh, and just in case you missed it, don't let your family keep to itself. Make their family your family. Essentially, God is telling them to care about where they live vocationally. Your callings are not to stay separate from the callings of the Babylonians. As homeowners and farmers and wives and husbands and children and family, use your callings to pursue the good of where you are. And so when we ask the question, does God care about what I do for work? The answer is yes. He cares deeply. Our our, our work matters to God. He wants us to live out our callings, our vocations like Christians, like followers of Jesus, like, like kingdom citizens who believe that God is really making all things new and that he's already started that. Through us. And it's not just that you need to start a Bible study or a prayer group at your job, although that's great, a great thing to do. But it's also about the way that you work must be different. It's also about doing what you do, whether it's crunching numbers or writing code or framing houses or managing a classroom of tiny humans. All of that you do as a follower of Jesus because it is reflective of who God is and what he's like. As a God of order... Spreadsheets reflect God's character when they work. As as a God of provision and strength, framing houses reflect his character. As as a God of beauty and order, writing code reflects his character. As As a God of love and patience, teaching reflects his character. God cares about what you do because what you do is a reflection, not just of how he made you, but of who he is. How does your work honor God? Think about that question. Sometimes we think about our jobs and we think, there's no way because I'm not doing things in the church that this honors God. But I really want you to reflect on and consider and and even uh, pray through that question. How does my work honor God? How can I work my job in a way that honors God? Which begs the second question, how do you see your work? Do you see it as good and sacred or as something you just do to pay the bills? Are we honest enough to see the brokenness of this world, and yes, even of our jobs, but hopeful enough to see the opportunities we have to participate in God's work here and now to make all things, not just spiritual things, new? You see, what we believe is not just something that affects Sunday. It's something that bleeds into, carries into Monday and throughout the week, and not just at home, but at work Two, pursue the common good vocationally. This is what God calls his people in exile to in Babylon— Because this is part of the way that God works in the world. This is one of the ways that he he calls us as his church to reflect who he is in the 21st century here and now. Now, pursuing the common good, though, is not just about uh, what society says is good or how society might define good. Pursuing the common good is about pursuing what's actually good, right? What God says is good, which is why I get to my second point, pursuing the common good counterculturally. Too often that phrase counterculture is actually used as as anti-culture or or outside of culture. But I think God's letter to uh, his people in Babylon, and I think in Revelation of his his whole scripture, is not so much against culture, but by communicating a way that we can be in culture but not of culture. Look at verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Don't just build and plant and marry and have babies and increase, but seek peace and prosperity for this city. 
Remember our context. This is the city of their enemies. And God is telling them to seek the peace and prosperity of this city. Do you get how radical that is? Why it's so hard to receive what God is telling them to do. Let me break down even some of these, these words to help you understand a little bit more. And when I was trying to study through this, the, the word seek there is a word that, that means something like, like, like care for, right? Like, like investigate, yes, and ask about and be, be diligent for, but, but, but care about, uh, uh, pursue. That's why I'm calling this the, the pursuit of the common good. Because here, God is commanding his people to pursue the peace and prosperity of the city that they're exiled in. Not just like, hey, if it happens, great, but actually get after it because you care about it and you care about them. But then that phrase, peace and prosperity, it it captures one word in the Hebrew, shalom, which is a very big word that has a lot of really incredible things in it. Shalom is about more than just a mental or spiritual peace, like, like being uh, kind of okay and having a good life. It is, it is complete peace. It is, it is peace that touches every single area of your life. It, it, is, it is about prospering and doing well and thriving, not, not just having money, but, but flourishing in all aspects of life. It, it, it's about growth and goodness and developing and progressing and, and, and being who God made us to be before sin distorted everything in terms of growth and progress. In other words, it's about becoming more human, more like God made us to be before sin broke everything. Now, when I say all this and even use the word prosperity, I recognize that there are uh, anti-gospel teachings that use this same language. This isn't health and wealth gospel. This isn't the prosperity gospel. Why? Because of the context. God is telling them all of this while they are in exile, right? Because they are in exile. And this is not just uh, ignore the fact that you're in exile, pretend everything is okay, stick your head in the sand. This is you're in exile. And even there, God can bring peace and prosperity to you here. But your peace and your prosperity is directly tied to the peace and prosperity of the, the, the nation that you're in, the city that you're in, your neighbors. Why? Because God made it that way. We're in this together kind of way. I'll illustrate this another way with a a story that's actually connected to our our church family here. It's a story of the Hope for Life Center. You see, for 20 years, uh, so it predates TBC, but we've been part of it. Uh, We've partnered with a a sister in Christ in Kenya that's named Josephine. And and, and supporting this Hope for Life Center, which which serves as this this hub of support and care for, for thousands of the most vulnerable people in the surrounding communities. They, they, they come there to get their physical needs met, but they're also getting their physical needs met in the name of Jesus, which means that the Spirit of God is not just meeting the physical needs, but their spiritual needs, and it's bringing many uh, of those people to saving faith. There's over 100 children that come every single day for a healthy meal. Sometimes that's, that's their only meal. And these children, they receive uh, things like life skills and jobs trainings, but they also hear about Jesus and are discipled to Jesus because all of it matters. And it, it, it reflects this, this, we're all in this together, caring for this community that Joseph, Josephine is a part of. And we, we were able to partner with her, and we exercise that belief that we believe that, that actually matters. But I'm sharing this, this story because I want to share another part that illustrates the, the meaning of work. This is a, a, a multi-pointed illustration for me because of how powerful it is. You see, Josephine has been praying for years to complete the building that they're in, to grow the center. And by God's grace and through the generosity of God's people in our church family, the, the, the Missions Fest giving project that we were giving to provided not only what the goal was of 10,000 meals for kids in the program, but on top of that, 
fully funded the construction of the final level and the roof for the center, something that she was not anticipating happening anytime soon. And so one of the ways we're partnering is that. And so I want to show you a video that uh, Josephine uh, sent us, praising God and thanking us, her brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but I also want you to pay attention to what she's doing, right? As, she, as she's praising God, she's walking us around. And I want you, want you to see what she's pointing at, and then I'll, I'll come back. Check out this video. Ooh, these are the miracles of God. Something that we have prayed for so long. And by miracle, God, thank you. The construction is almost complete at the last bit now. See how it is. See how beautiful it is. And the marathon is doing fine work. These are the timbers. These are the timbers for roofing. And it still be complete with thank God. We thank God. Christian Bible Church, thank you so much for making this happen. This is great love from our God. The building is getting complete miracles god our giver thank you thank you so just to be clear she's praising god the one who gave it's not like hey you church are amazing it's god giving amen but i want did you catch what i was talking about she, she's walking around and she's pointing at the, the timbers she's talking about the masons you actually hear them in the background the wood the building all of that and we could say that it's good because this building, uh, of what happens in this building and how the Lord uses this building. But I want to suggest to you that it's, it's also good because it reflects the creativity of God. That, that, that the masons and the workers are reflecting whether or not they believe in this God, the God that made them. And, and what's even more incredible is that, that God is not uh, trying to distinguish like, oh, here's the religious stuff and here's the, the building stuff. Because one of the cool stories that came out of this is that one of the masons that were going there day after day working saw what the Lord was doing in that center and, and was, was touched by it. Something happened to lead him to a conversation where they invited him back for one of the, the, the worship services that they have there. And that very night, he gave his life to Jesus. The, the presence of God was so strong there through all the work that they were doing at the center. And then even as they were working on this building and even at this worship service, that, that even the, the workers completing the construction couldn't deny what was happening there. And yes, they were doing something good by building and reflecting the image of God that they bear, but, but God didn't stop there. He used the witness of this community to re reconnect this image bearer with his God. And God was bringing shalom through food, through building, and through the gospel that, that testifies to God making all things new here and now. Here's why I want you to see this. Yes, the Lord allowed us to participate in this particular story with Josephine and, and the Hope for Life Center financially. But I want you to see more than that, that God... Seeing God in your work is not just for, for missions work overseas. It's for us here and now. It's, it's for us in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, pursuing the common good here, seeking the shalom of the city that the Lord has put us in. And not just peace, but true peace. Not just prosperity, but, but true prosperity, tr true flourishing. Because true shalom is found in Jesus alone. This is why we pursue the common good counterculturally. Because we know that true peace and prosperity comes from Jesus, that it is, it is defined by Jesus. One of the, the writers that I like to, to read a lot, he, he writes this in one particular article about the common good. He says, if we are not offering our neighbors the ultimate common good, the knowledge and love of God, we are not taking the idea of the common good seriously. But then he continues. 
My decisions about where to live and what to eat and buy, as well as what to grow and create, whom to befriend and where to volunteer, whom to employ and how much to pay, they're not just about my private fulfillment. They will also either contribute to others' flourishing, shalom, or undermine it. This is both and. Right? We, we know that ultimately caring for people doesn't stop at the physical because we are after uh, 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 shalom, and true shalom is found in Jesus alone. The gospel is still at the center as we pursue the common good, but we also know that it includes the physical. You see, the gospel enables this pursuit and drives it. When, when Jesus died, he did not stay dead. Right? He, he came back to life. He, he died for our sins and came back to life to reestablish relationship with God that we had broken because of our sins and our disobedience. But Jesus' resurrection also began the renewal of all things, that God is making everything new, that he started with Jesus and he hasn't paused until Jesus returns. He is working even now. He's embedding everything with his resurrection power. He is spreading his kingdom everywhere through his people, giving previews of his kingdom. We, we are his previews of, of, of true justice and real love and what it means to be truly human. Not what advertisers say we need to be truly human, this or that product. Or what culture says we need to be truly human, being authentic and true to ourselves no matter what anyone says. But to live like we bear the image of our creator. Like we, we actually live in the kingdom of God here and now and there's a, a, a good and righteous king who is all wise and all powerful and just and compassionate. And that reality is seen most clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give everything because he gave everything first. Because true shalom is found in Jesus alone, which also means that pursuing the common good is not something that we do in order to earn our place in his kingdom. It is something we do because our place is already secure in his kingdom, and this is what kingdom citizens live like. We reflect our king everywhere we go, but we aren't doing this to earn our spot. The gospel communicates that he died in our place to do that. Citizens of the kingdom do all of this because they, they deeply and truly understand and have embodied and, and, and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not as a way to um, feel better or make sure that you're doing the right thing. You, you are living out of the gospel of Jesus. But this isn't just something we do in our vocations, and it's not just something we do counterculturally. We also have to, when I talk about this, uh, I, it brings up different thoughts, that I, different conversations that I've had. We need to fight the lies that try to deceive us away from pursuing the common good, which brings us to my third point. Pursue the common good realistically. Not in a utopian sort of way or an idealistic sort of way, but realistically, as defined by God himself, uh, pushing against the lies. Look at verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So here's the situation. Jeremiah is writing this letter to these exiles because he heard that some of God's people in Babylon were saying that they were prophets and they were telling other people, other of, of God's people that were in this exile, that their exile was going to be short. Right? Hey, it's only going to be a few years. Don't worry about it. We're going to be back home in no time. God is going to take care of these brutal Babylonians, and we won't have to deal with them anymore. So Jeremiah writes this letter. He gives the leaders of God's people God's response to this, uh, the, these prophecies, this, this uh, thing he's hearing from them. They are lies. Don't listen to them. 
God commands them to pursue the common good, which is a radical enough command, but he also wants to protect them from the lies that will discourage them from obedience. Lies that I, didn't, that I think didn't really stay in Babylon, but continue to this very day among God's people. Right? Same lies, different day. And here are two of the ones that I hear most often when I talk about this that sound similar to what happened in, in Jeremiah's day. It's all going to burn, and they're not one of us. Right? In Jeremiah's day, they believed the lie that the exile is not going to last. It's not going to be that long. So what we do doesn't really matter. Right? Today we say similar things. We just don't talk like them. We say it's all going to burn. Why should I care about all this stuff if God is going to come back and it's all going to be destroyed? Because it's not all going to burn. At the end of the Bible, we don't read that God teleports everyone into paradise as we look back on a world that's burnt to a crisp. What we see is God coming down to live with humanity. The heavenly city coming down to earth, we see God making this earth right again, not getting rid of it. The resurrection proves that God actually cares about restoring creation, not destroying creation. Jesus resurrected with an actual body, right? Yes, it was a restored and a glorified body, but it was still flesh and bones, and he still had to eat. And God is fixing, not getting rid of creation. Well, how about the other lie? They're not one of us. Right? This is similar to the problem that, that my fictional character Alex ran into at the beginning. Do people have to become Christians before we love them? In Jeremiah 29, God says nothing about the Babylonians becoming God's people before intertwining lives with them. Or even seeking their peace and their prosperity. Or praying for them even. Now, that's not to say that we don't preach the gospel to our neighbors. We know that taking care of the physical is only part of caring for them. But pursuing the, the common good is not anti-evangelism. I would submit to you that it is complete evangelism. That it communicates the goodness of life with God, of the kingdom, of, of the gospel, by caring about more than just someone's soul, because everyone is more than just their soul. We are our bodies and our souls. We are not either or. And we love because they are image bearers. And we want to care for them completely, which includes preaching the gospel with words, but it doesn't stop there. Now, we're going to talk more about evangelism in a later sermon, because that, that deserves its own sermon like a whole separate thing, but I want to make it clear here that pursuing the common good is not choosing against evangelism, but choosing for a better, more holistic evangelism, right? Just like Jeremiah warned God's people to not believe the lies of false prophets, we need to reject the lies that, that loving our neighbors is not worth it because God's going to destroy this world, or that loving our neighbors is not faithful to the gospel because it also cares about the body. Pursue the common good realistically, knowing that God is at work here and now, making everything right. God is after shalom, and true shalom is found in Jesus alone, but it reaches into everything. And this is what gives us hope. So here's my final point. Pursue the common good, hopefully, with hope, in hope. Trusting in God rather than what you see or what you, what you worry about. Full of hope that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. This is the hope of verses 10 through 14 where we read this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Here is the famous verse that gets put on coffee mugs and desktop backgrounds. right? Meant to encourage and inspire. And it should. The problem is, I don't think we mean the same thing that God means when he uses words like plans or prosper or harm or hope or future. Right? Like uh, Inigo Montoya in the, the Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I, I don't think that word means what you think it means. 
You see, we often take this verse out of context and apply it to our lives, believing that harm is any kind of suffering and prospering is any kind of material success. So when suffering comes and the bank account is running low, it must mean that either God's plan has failed or something is wrong with me. But this verse is defined by the context of exiled people who have been exiled for their disobedience. They're they're anxious about their future and worried that God has abandoned them. They are angry at God for doing what they think is wrong and and sending them into the hands of their enemies. They They are angry and frustrated and wondering how in the world God can be good. And to his angry, anxious, frustrated people, God writes. He commands them to seek the shalom of their enemies because they are tied up together with them. He tells them to get comfortable, right? The very opposite of what the false prophets are saying. It's not just going to last a couple of years. It's going to be 70 years. And yet he writes that hope is not lost. This is not the end. At the end of 70 years, I'm coming and I will keep my promise to you. Even though you haven't kept your promises, I will keep mine. I have plans for you, good and hope-filled plans for the future, plans for your shalom and not your destruction. But you have to remember not only that you are not God, Israel, but that you have a mission in this world, and it is to display me. In a very real sense, God is forcing them in exile to be who he called them to be, a light to the nations. Spending their lives trying to avoid the nations, now they're living right in the same city, and they have to be a witness. And he does it by interweaving their shalom with the shalom of their enemies. Because God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, and God is not about our happiness, but our good, our shalom. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, that requires discomfort. For them at this time, it meant punishment. It doesn't always mean that for us, but for us, it certainly means that God is making us holy and making us look more like Jesus. The text continues in verse 12. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God's plan does not end in Babylon. That's the hope of this passage. But the other thing we have to realize is that it certainly includes Babylon. This is one step on the way for God's people to truly be God's people. Not not rebelling against his rule and doing whatever they want, but being dependent on him. Praying and seeking him with all of their hearts. Pursuing the common good, hopefully, with hope that God is using it for his glory and the good of others. But also for our good. That he is making us more and more like him. That he is answering prayer and spreading shalom. Pursue the common good vocationally. In every calling of your life, yes, work included. Pursue the common good counterculturally, defining good according to God, not according to society, but still pursuing it for those who are rebelling against God because that's the essence of the gospel. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Pursue the common good realistically, knowing that sin still distorts our reality, And entrusting ourselves to what God says about the world. That it is good, but still distorted by sin. That he is making everything new. That we are are, are citizens of the kingdom. But that we are living here right now. And pursue the common good, hopefully. Not believing that everything will always go well, but that God is working everything for good. And that he will finish what he started. Everything will be right again, and suffering will end. Now, 
I recognize in this passage, we're, we're uh, in the Old Testament, and you might be like, Eric, okay, I get it. I get what happened back then, uh, but those are God's people, Israel, and, and he sent them into disobedience. Like, it doesn't sound like that's what God is commanding me to do. He's commanding them to do that. So why are you talking about this? Well, because the New Testament actually picks this back up. And I'm going to end with a New Testament letter, much like Jeremiah's letter, because it's written to exiles, the book of 1 Peter. It's what we've been going through as a men's Bible study, so we keep talking about this with the guys. But I'm going to bring it out here to summarize all four points today from this that, that 1 Peter actually brings up to us, is that we need to pursue the common good like followers of Jesus. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 explains it like this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, God made us his. We were enemies uh, before, but now all of us who believe are his children. And when God made us his, he also gave us a mission. That we might declare his praises to everyone. That we might display his light in our lives and our words and our actions. But Peter doesn't stop. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see, familia, it's not only God's people in Jeremiah's day that are exiles, but, but us too. Not because we've disobeyed. It's a different kind of exile. But because, like I've been saying, this is not our home. This is not our country. We're not first and foremost American citizens. Remember I said first and foremost. We are that, but we are first and foremost kingdom citizens. Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews says that we await a city whose builder is God. We are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And as such, we live like exiles here and now. And like exiles, First Peter says, we, we live and we fight against our sin. But why? Verse 12 explains. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Not just by living righteously and make sure you don't sin, but by putting on full display the life of the kingdom. You see, for the rest of the chapter in 1 Peter 2, he starts talking about how to submit to the government and how to work even with unjust masters and how to live out as husbands and wives a marriage that honors God and honors one another, even if your spouse is not a believer. Because Christianity, this faith, this kingdom affects all of our lives. All of our lives, but everything about our lives. Pursue the common good like a follower of Jesus, like, like an exile who knows that this is not our home and yet cares for it and previews the kingdom of God for others because we know that God is making this new and eventually will make this into our home. We may not be citizens of this world, but we're not tourists. We are resident aliens. God calls us to live holy lives wherever he has placed us, to pursue the common good, to participate in God's work here and now to make all things, not just spiritual things, new to build houses and plant gardens and get married and have babies who have babies as people who, who care about what God cares about. And God cares about every single image bearer that lives in our neighborhoods and goes to our jobs. God cares about the renewal of his entire creation. That is what he is after. And so we as a church need to be, uh, 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 to put it a little bluntly, getting with the program 
Because this is what God is doing in the world. And so when I say we pursue the common good, I mean what we know, what God tells us is good for all people because he made all people. Would you pray with me that we as a church might do that? Gracious and merciful God, we praise you this morning because you have called us out of darkness and into light. You have saved us and you've given us new life. You you have changed everything and for that we are grateful. You are worthy of all worship, Father, and as new creations in Christ, we ask that you would, like we're about to sing, lead us in your love to those around us. Would you open our eyes to all the ways we might love others? Sharing the love of Christ and being part of your, your renewing work here and now. Would you, would you help us to care about our communities and help us to see how much you care about our work? Would you help us not to undervalue our work as if it doesn't matter? But help us not to overvalue our work as if it's all that matters. May our identity be, fi- be found in you. May we be defined not by what we do, but by you. And yet, Lord, we also ask that you would sanctify our work that you would make it holy, that that we may see the holy calling we have in every sphere of life, from the the marketplace to our homes to our neighborhoods. Would you you drive us to pray for our neighbors and our coworkers, for, for their salvation and for their shalom, their prosperity, their good. We pray that you would continue to shape every area, every area of our lives around your gospel. We entrust ourselves to you. We pray all these things in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.